This is Passing for Normal, conversations with authors, artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm Sharon Weil, author of Donnie and Ursula Save the World, the funniest book about love, sex, and GMO seeds you'll ever read. But mostly, it's about everyday courage and what it takes to get there in your own personal, even unconventional way. So join us for fun and insightful discussion with some very inspirational people about how to turn purpose and passion into action, while at the same time, passing for normal. Welcome to Passing for Normal. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with permaculture design expert Penny Livingston Stark. Penny Livingston Stark is recognized internationally as a prominent permaculture teacher, designer, and speaker. For 25 years, she has taught and worked in land management, regenerative design, permaculture development, ecological sound construction and design, including natural non-toxic building, rainwater collection, edible and medicinal plants, and diverse yield perennial farms. She co-founded with her husband, James Stark, Regenerative Design Institute and co-manages Commonweal Garden, a 17-acre organic farm in Bolinas, California, a living classroom for learning from the wonders of the natural world, soil-based research, and transformational play. Penny studies the hermetic tradition of alchemy and herbal medicine, studies with Native American elders, and plays a mean fiddle. I consider her the queen of permaculture design. Welcome, my queen. Wow. Thanks, Sharon. I hope I can live up to that. (laughs) Well, you already do. You already do. I'm just reflecting back. So, Penny, the show is all about how we meet change or how we initiate change. And so you and I are going to talk today about solutions to the problems of changes to food and water, the planet, climate health. But before we do, I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about permaculture design or the whole system's thinking behind permaculture design that can bring us into this multi-level conversation and um, all of the things that you know about and that you do. (laughs) In five minutes or less. In five Um, minutes or less. Yeah. Well, um, permaculture is a design science. It's actually rooted in the observation of nature, of natural systems, you know, asking the question, you know, how does nature do it? And then we humbly try to understand nature's operating instructions and nature's principles and apply it to de- the design of human settlements. Um, it was developed by... Um, an Australian young <clears throat> environmental design student named David Holmgren and a professor from Tasmania, Bill Mollison, who Bill actually coined the term permaculture, like permanent culture. Mm-hmm. This was back in the 70s when there was no word for kind of like sustainability. And, and, the, and even the concept of permaculture goes beyond sustainability because it's not about being sustainable you know, which is kind of like, oh, yeah, we're sustainable, you know, woohoo. <laughs> it's about being yeah. regenerative. It's about being restorative. Right. It's, it's about not being less bad or just maintaining status quo. It's, it's actually building more fertility and abundance and verdant ecosystems in our wake through our activities than what was there prior. So, you know, yeah, so a permaculture garden is full of, you know, fruit and flowers and herbs and berries and microorganisms and fungi in the soil and 
you know, just life above and below the earth and working so, all together. Yeah, and but the other piece that's important to know is that it's not just about gardening and food. It's about economic systems, it's about social structures, mm-hmm. it's about mm-hmm. energy systems, shelter. You know, it's about mm-hmm. all aspects of human um activity or that affects human activity because and and it's also where 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 it brings us to is that we are all connected and everything is connected everything is affecting everything else so as we are scientists observing nature instead of observing things in a reductionist manner in isolation we're actually observing the interconnections of things and how different elements interact in a system. And that system could be a social system like an urban community of different, you know, ethnic groups and, in a, you know, different cultural groups coming together in a city, you know. It could be how water, um, soil, plants, fish, and birds, and people interact. Mm-hmm. And, and you always have to think about the economic aspects Aspects because if you ignore that, then the system isn't whole. So you have to include everything. That was so beautifully put. Um, you told me that you were just speaking at the um, Heirloom Seed Festival in Santa Rosa and that the hot topics were soil and carbon sequestration and water collection. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'll start with water, because I always start with water. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, just to say that we're we're in a drought here in California, and then all of a sudden everybody's getting concerned about, you know, water during a drought, and they want to start planning for drought, and that's a little bit too late. You know, you have to start uh-huh. planning for drought before the rainy season so that you can actually put the systems in place to harvest water. So our farm here, you know, even during this drought, all of our cisterns are full. We are we are not suffering from a drought here because we've been putting water harvesting structures in our farm in various methods um, for the last eight years. So we have contour swales that... Um, infiltrate water into the soil so we don't have to irrigate our trees. We have um, these dinky-winky little trickles of springs that we have. Yeah, they're dinky-winky little trickles. So, um, yeah, so we put a lot of um, our water from this dinky-winky little spring into tanks. So we have 10,000 gallons of tank storage, because even though that spring is a little trickle, it's 24-7, you know, so it's trickling in all the time. And then we also have a pond. Yeah, and then we have a pond. We have a solar pump that pumps water up to a tank to uh, another 5,000 gallons on a ridge that then gravity feeds down. So, um, you know, and then we also have water that we collect off of a roof, about 2,800 gallons off of a roof, so we have multiple ways of sources of water, which is one of the principles of permaculture. It's like how many ways can you achieve your goal? So instead of putting all your eggs in one basket, you diversify and create multiple ways, in in this case getting water. And, uh, you know, I could go on about this, but in general... You know, we've been doing this for the last eight years, so now that we're in a drought, we have all of our systems in place to be have our water security. And then the other um, 
thing that that people were really excited about, and I'm very excited about, is this idea of soil carbon sequestration. And the idea is, you know, we're so concerned about how many parts per million of CO2 is in the air right now, and what we're finding out is that what is the best way to take that CO2 out of the air and put it back in the ground but through soil building and plants? Photosynthesis. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, all that excess CO2 got out in the air, not only just from um, burning fossil fuels, but by bad agriculture. Every time you Mm -hmm. dig a hole in the ground or disturb the soil, there's a poof of organic carbon gets oxidized and turns into CO2 and carbon dioxide, Mm -hmm. and it evaporates into the air. And so um, I've heard statistics that... You know, there's been way more CO2 has gone into the atmosphere because of bad land use and bad agriculture than all of the fossil fuels ever burned. So even if we stopped burning fossil fuels today, like a miracle occurs, no fossil fuels are being burned, there's still going to be a buildup of CO2 from inertia, and it's still not going to solve the problem until we start actually sequestering it back and taking it back out of the air and putting it back in the soil where it belongs. And the most efficient way to do that is through plants. And, you know, if you mm-hmm. imagine a little, you know, you plant a, uh, an acorn that turns into an oak tree, and that oak tree grows. As that plant is growing, it's breathing in CO2 and breathing out oxygen. And as it's breathing in CO2, it's creating the building blocks to create the carbon that becomes the body and the roots of the tree. Mm-hmm. The other very powerful solution is in rangeland management, where you have deep-rooted pasture grasses, and there's a lot of caveats. It's like deep-rooted pasture grasses, not shallow-rooted ones, mm-hmm. um, yeah. like prairie grasses and native bunch grasses, <clears throat> and um, and then you graze cows or cattle in a manner that you uh, concentrate them and intensify them. You don't give them any antibiotics, so there's no biocides passing through the manures, killing microbes, and you actually increase their manure in a zone. And if you're lucky, which we've been observing, is what what is attractive at that point is the magic creature called the dung beetle. And the dung beetle comes along, and because there's not any antibiotics in the manure, it will she most likely will be the one to dig a hole maybe two or three feet down all over the pastures. These dung beetles come, and they dig holes, lay their eggs, and then their whole life is rolling dung balls and depositing them in these in these long tubular holes that go down into the earth. And then when the eggs hatch, the larvae eat their way up, <laughs> eating the, the manure. And meanwhile, instead of having cow pies that, you know, you can throw around as Frisbees like we used to do when we were kids, yeah. you don't see any manure on the pastures. Uh-huh. It's drilled all over the earth, thank you to the dung beetle. But that won't happen unless you're actually running your cattle in the manner of the wild herds. You know, in wild herds, if you look at caribou or bison or antelope or deer or elk, you know, they are herd animals and they they kind of, like a pod, you know, or a herd, they... They don't spread out all over the landscape because they have to protect themselves from predation. And so when you start mimicking those the wild herds, 
you bring back the dung beetle and then you start stimulating the grasses and the grass grows and then the roots grow. And when the grass grows, it's taking atmospheric CO2, putting it into the roots, which will remain there for virtually ever until somebody comes along and digs it up. It will start to build up humus. Now, the magic of all of this and what's been the most inspiring, I was inspired by a soil scientist named Ratan Lal. He's from the University of Ohio, and he was the head of the Soil Scientist Society of America for years. And he did the math and published some papers that state that if we, let me just start by saying 8.5% of the Earth's surface is arable land. It's land that we can actually do something with. It's not like up in ice. It's not all craggy mountain ridgetops, um, but it's arable land. And if we can increase the humus content on that 8.5% of the land by 1.6%, we could bring our CO2 levels back to pre-industrial levels. I'll, I'll say it again. If we can increase the humus content to about one foot in depth, by 1.6% on all of the Earth's surfaces, meaning some areas we might increase it by 3 or 4% in other areas, yes. not at all. Mm-hmm. Just, like as an average, just to give us an idea, we can sequester enough atmospheric CO2 and turn it into organic carbon using plants to bring it back down to pre-industrial levels. And that's saying a lot. it seems like a lot. It's not a lot, but it is a lot. You know, to give you a good example, like a good, you know, organic farm with black, humusy soil might have 5% humus. But there's mm-hmm. also farms, really good farms, that have 8%. The, the, they discovered in the Amazon um, basin, uh, Amazon basin um, some of your listeners may be familiar with biochar, which is another solution to carbon sequestration where you... Um, sort of smolder wood or grass or different things and turns it into pure, high-quality carbon. And somebody about 1,500 years ago or more did this in humans, and they don't know whether it's on purpose or an accident or what, but they did this. And now we're finding that this, uh, this these high-carbon soils in the tropics are extraordinarily bioactive, and they're like 10% humus. And they're still bioactive, you know, meaning that they, they hold the nutrients and keep from leaching out, which is really important in tropical soils. And then they're also a house, like a condo unit, for beneficial bacteria and fungi and microbes and nutrients, and, and that these, these organisms will migrate in and out of the charcoal to the plant roots to get sugar that's from the plant photosynthesizing and in in exchange bringing them nutrients that's sequestered into the charcoal that the charcoal manages to hold for an indefinite period of time. And it just keeps kind of creating this exchange, nutrient exchange. That, in this case, has been going on for over 1,500 years. So now... People are taking this and really studying biochar, and you can just go on the internet and Google it, and it's you know all over the place. But it's there's still so much to be learned about it too that we don't know. 
but it's very promising. So all of these different solutions are ways of building up the humus in the soil. And if we put all our effort into doing this uh, as, a, as, a, as a species throughout the globe, we could actually start to reduce the capacity for climate change. You know, in terms of exacerbating it, you know. Climate change will happen. It always is happening. That's a normal process. But in terms of exacerbating that greenhouse effect that's melting the ice caps, uh, that we could mitigate that. So what is required? Is agreement acquired between people? (laughs) Do people first have to believe it? I mean, you know, we, we were talking about that, yes, here are some solutions that exist, and why aren't we using them? Why aren't we doing more about it? Yeah, I mean, if you think about the whole thing, we know how to grow food without chemicals. We know how to clean water biologically. We know how to build non-toxic buildings. You know, we know how to, you know, design and build clean, renewable energy systems um, with what we have already on this earth without the need to even continue mining more more products. We know how to recycle the products that we have and repurpose and reuse. We know how to do everything. The technology is here. That is not our problem. The problem is, you know, the question is, why aren't we doing it? And the answer is very, very multifaceted and very complicated, but it has to do with the human worldview. And so one of the, the, the way I'm looking at it is that we need, to change our worldview and our relationship to the earth mm-hmm. herself, yeah. and I say herself on purpose. We need to recognize that we are related to this earth, that she is our mother, whether you want to think about it the same as our biological mother or not, but if you look at it, we come from her and we return to her. She represents the feminine aspects of of the archetype of the world. Um, so um, she's sick and she needs our help. And so that's, that's a fundamental worldview that um, we need to change because as long as we objectify nature, turn it into this object, this thing that isn't related to us, that isn't even really alive, it somehow allows us to justify doing her harm and extracting and taking advantage and exploiting and um, ignoring the, the very clear signs of our impact through species extinction and ocean acidification and all the things that are happening uh, on the earth right now, um, that it allows us to kind of just think, oh, well, like, almost like, you know, my car needs to go out and get fixed, so let's just go get some new parts and, and inject them or insert them here and we'll fix everything. Well, and like this mechanical world, world view of, of separate parts that we can just kind of fit together, that isn't, that isn't what's happening. It's much, much more complicated than that and it's much more interconnected and interrelated and it's a living system. And, for, and until we get this in our bones and in our cells and in our spirit, um, it, it'll just keep justifying us to try to create these mechanical fixes that aren't really going to work. And, you know, that's, so that's one of the things is worldview. So in, in many ways I see that we're kind of suffering almost more of a crisis in consciousness 
mm-hmm. a spiritual crisis than anything else. And, you know, you can go back to so many threads throughout human history and human development that have led us to where we are today and um, to, under, uh, to, un, to unravel that would be like trying to untangle a rubber band ball, you know. It would be right. almost impossible because so, it's so intertangled. So what we need to do and what many people are talking about doing is writing a new story for who we are as a species on this planet and recognize in a humble way that we have a lot to learn and that we have a form of intelligence, but it may not necessarily even be the highest form of intelligence. That's you know, right. a, slime, a slime mold can find their way through a maze. You know, there's right. been so many experiences. How, how smart is a rat? Oh, a rat does, or how smart is, you know, a parrot or a raven? You know, they can use tools. You know, woohoo! You know, that, that we, we put a value that that shows an, an intelligence. But well, because, it, other because it reflects something that we can do. So if we're right. the most intelligent, then, oh, they can do it too, then they must be intelligent. Right. It's, their, it's the metric of what is intelligent. So maybe we can do it better than a raven to find, um, to make a tool, but so that must mean we're smarter. But mm-hmm. the question is, are we? You know, how much do we actually really pay attention to detail in the same way a raven does out in the natural world. You know, I'm, well, I'm all it, and is, Yes, and isn't there intelligence in the interconnectivity itself? I mean, isn't that part of the intelligence? Is how it absolutely is. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And the the relationship between plants and animals, for example, and the coevolution of the all the different organisms and how they've interacted and learned to interact, just like, you know, how the salvia flower um, has formed so that when a hummingbird comes to pollinate or to get the nectar from the salvia flower, a little fulcrum inside the flower uh, is pushed by the beak of the hummingbird and it comes down and drops pollen on the hummingbird's head. So when the hummingbird goes to the next flower, it starts to pollinate the next flower, you know, and that is, you know, Perfection. There's, yeah, there's, really, there's who thought that up? I don't know. But it was, yeah, well, really. And Amazing. and so you know, and the thing is, is if you lose the hummingbird, you might lose the, the salvia too. You know, right. there's a gentian flower in Africa that only opens up and spreads its pollen when there's a bee that hums its wings to a particular note. I think it's like a C or something. You know, and it hums its wings, and when the when the flower hears this note of the bee, then the flower will open. Well, uh, the pollen will it'll open up its pollen sacs to distribute the pollen. So without the bee, the flower doesn't know to do that. I mean, that's how incredibly intricate it is here. Yeah, everyone's needed. Everyone is yeah. needed. Yeah. Yeah. And so and this is this is a lot of the work that you're doing at um, RDI and, you know, wherever you go is introducing um, and establishing these uh, connections yeah. for people with the natural world. Yeah, and, you know, what we're, what we're doing, you know, we have the, you know, Commonwealth Garden and we're here actually creating a place where people can come and see these act- interactions in play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... We have 
you know, when you come to the, our garden, people the, the first thing people notice is how loud the birds are. There's so many birds here. We don't have infestations of insects and and things. There's no, it's impossible because the garden is a feeding frenzy. We call it the flyby cafe. Yeah. There's always something to keep something else in check. So we don't do monoculture. We have a lot of biodiversity above ground and below ground. Um, and there's no way that anything can just invade here and take over like a scourge of some kind of, I don't know what, an insect pest or a locust or... <laughs> It, mm-hmm. it, there's too too many uh, people out there that are just waiting to to eat any pathogenic insects or fungi. You know, we do a lot mm-hmm. of different plantings because the roots of certain plants will keep away the fungus of others. Like we're replant interplanting onions with our cabbage. That seems to mm-hmm. help slugs and snails. And, uh-huh. Right, and this is this is exactly what conventional agriculture is not doing. Right. And there and again, you know, it's like, oh, they need nitrogen, you know, they talk about the micronutrients. They don't they don't talk about the ni- micronutrients in conventional agriculture. They talk about the major grow ways so the plant can grow. But what happens is when a plant gets so caught uh pumped up with water and fertilizer and nitrogen, uh and a and a bug comes along with what they they categorize them with uh, sucking pierce, piercing mouth parts, you know. <laughs> they come to the tomato, and it's like sipping soda through a straw. They're like, they're oh, dope. Wow. They're like, yeah. Whereas if yeah. they come to one of our tomatoes, it's like trying to sip honey through a straw, and they don't, uh-huh. you know, they're kind of like, eh. They give up. <laughs> well, uh-huh. so having you know really strong, healthy soil builds strong, healthy plants. And if you don't have the nutrients in the soil, you're not going to have the nutrients in the plants, and then you're not going to get the nutrients in your body. Thus we have, you know, these chronic fatigues and immune system things, and so many things, you know, are are, are weakening our system, not only because of our lack of nutrition, but also the exposure to all these other chemicals. Whether it's in your house, they say over 2,500 different chemicals, are in a brand new house, you know, outgassing with mm-hmm. carpets and glues and paints and plastics and wow. all these things. Whereas, yeah. you know, we're we're creating technologies here where we build houses out of clay and straw, and the binder is flour paste. <laughs> <laughs> Basically edible. You yeah. know, the paint <laughs> and all of our finishes. Out of your house, yeah. So yeah. the That's solutions, amazing. like I said, are there. The solutions are there. And it sounds like what you're saying is the biggest solution is to be is to be connected to nature and to find our place in nature as it works with all the other creatures and beings and plants in nature. Yeah. And also which also leads us to being connected to ourselves and being connected yes. to our families and to our neighbors and to other human beings and to 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 be respectful of all of creation and to honor ourselves the same way we honor everything else we love. You know, it's an inner it's an inner landscape that we also have to cultivate in order to shift our relationship to our world. And, you know, it's odd, but, uh, you know, this appears to be the reason why we're not 
actually shifting and healing the planet because this biosystem, without the biosystems that are on this earth with clean water, clean air, biodiversity, with that interconnection we've been talking about, we can't, it'll be very difficult for us to survive. Our resiliency is completely dependent on the resiliency of the earth. And if we compromise that resiliency, we're compromising our own resiliency. And we're seeing this in play in terms of how our children are being born. You know, it's, it's reflecting already and has been for decades. Time for us to wake up and, and see what's going on, really have the courage to look around and have the courage to change. Mm-hmm. You know, have so the courage to... Put. Yeah, it's it's a courageous act, it is and, a it, and it's an act of act. trust. You know, we have to also trust, right? It, yeah, in the earth, in each other. Hmm. Beautiful. What a beautiful way to wrap this up. Because believe it or not, it's time to wrap it up. <laughs> So beautiful. Um, so before we wrap it up, I want you to please tell people how they can find you, how they can learn more about you and the programs that you offer. Um, tell us, please. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can find me at our website, which is uh, regenerativedesign.org. It's all one word, regenerativedesign.org. And we do have programs here. Most of them are designed for people that live in the San Francisco Bay Area, but we have, you know, uh, one month, uh, one day a month permaculture course that comes in, so it's easy for people to come and do that. We also, I also am teaching in various places all over the world. I'll be teaching in December in Bahia in Brazil. There's a permaculture design course happening there. There will be one, uh, some courses and trainings, advanced trainings in Costa Rica in March. Mm. And then in May I'll be in the in Great Pyrenees in France. So mm-hmm. it's a wonderful you. way to travel and learn mm. and become part of the solutions because all of the things I'm talking about, we teach in these trainings, and they're usually around two weeks long, or these one-day-a-month uh, courses happen over a period of a year. So if you're in the Bay Area, we're starting one up at the end, toward the end of August. Or, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. toward the end of October. Yes. And um, we can, you know, you can come to our farm out in Bolinas, California, and West Marin, and experience our farm and learn new skills. Mm-hmm. And, and hang out with you. That's yeah, and it's really yeah. fun. And we get out in the you know, land and look at things and do things, and it's really fun. And mm-hmm. So I highly recommend it. <laughs> Wonderful. So do I. So do I. Well, Penny, thank you so much. It's been great talking with you and hearing all the things that you're involved with and what you have to share and your perspective, um, which is both very encouraging and very compelling. Well, thank you, Sharon. Yeah. So, we'll be talking again. Okay, we sure will. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about seeding change in the world. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to PassingForNormal.com. That's Passing, numeral four, normal.com. Donnie and Ursula Save the World is available in paperback, Kindle, and soon to be an audiobook at DonnieAndUrsula.com. So go out and do something brave today. 
am earth and I thank you.